Good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started with the preaching of God's Word. If you could start finding your seats. Good morning. My name is Zach Douglas. I'm the student ministries uh, director here, and it is my honor to preach on 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5 this week. So if you could go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, that's where we'll be for this morning. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our, our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and and how it guides us and shapes us. I pray that as we talk about heaven and, and what comes after death, that we would be focused on your glory, not our own, that you would be our source of courage and confidence, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead, go ahead and be seated. So we're still a couple weeks away from starting Philippians. Nathan will be preaching through Philippians now that we finished up Exodus. But this morning we will be in 2 Corinthians, and we're getting dropped kind of into the middle of the book. So I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the context of what Paul has been talking about up to this point in 2 Corinthians so that we can further understand it. So in this book as a whole, what Paul is doing is he's defending his ministry against opponents who were uh, trying to discredit him, saying that he shouldn't be an apostle, or he's obviously not an apostle because of the suffering that he's experiencing, or you shouldn't listen to him because he's, uh, he's not a great speaker. And what Paul is doing is he's showing his credentials, not in an an arrogant or prideful way, but he's saying that I have been commissioned by Christ and to proclaim the gospel and and to lead these churches, including the Corinthian church. And so what he's doing is he's talking about why he and his partners, at least in this section of 2 Corinthians, why he and his partners in ministry have continued in ministry, even in the face of opposition, whether it's from the Jewish leaders or from the Roman government, they continue really in the face of death. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, talking about the human body, that the human body is like a jar of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is in you. He says that the gospel, that the proclamation of the gospel comes in jars of clay, that, that we are in a temporary body, and this treasure of the gospel comes through that, and that death is at work in them, but life in those who hear. That he, the reason he continues in spite of all this opposition is so that people might hear the gospel 
and be saved. That is his purpose. But his source of courage, he goes on to talk about in verse 14. He says, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul's courage is found specifically in the promises of God, and that being the promise of resurrection and eternal life. He recognizes the temporary nature of the body, calling it a jar of clay, something cheap, not really worth looking at. If you drop it, it shatters. But the light is the gospel, and he carries this treasure in a jar of clay. The light of his ministry that he knows will be the the death of him eventually, he continues on courageously because he knows the promises of God. He's able to do this because the cur- his courage comes not, not from anything else but Christ, knowing that this life isn't it. That when he dies, he will go on to eternity. So that should, that should honestly lead us to ask the question, how can he keep a joyful and Christ-centered spirit throughout all this suffering and trial? That, yeah, I know about him, and I know about eternity, but that might not make us as courageous as Paul or as others throughout church history, whether it's, it's pe- women like Corey Ten Boom who continued to preach the gospel in Nazi concentration camps or Dietrich Bonhoeffer who stood against the Nazi government, which ev- led to his eventual death or men like Adoniram Judson who went cross-culturally even though, even though it could mean death for him, but he was still going to proclaim the gospel. The reason for their courage was their focus was on eternity, and they understood what heaven would be like, and they longed for it. That's why they were able to go and do courageous things for the gospel, even in the face of death. Now, you might be asking, as I am, why don't I have this same perspective? Why, when I feel prompted to share the gospel, am I afraid of even just the the shame or rejection that can come from that? Why am, what would it take for me to be courageous like that? The reason we may not have that same perspective or that same courage is because we have a wrong view of heaven and eternity. Sure, you might affirm what scripture says, that, that the earth will be made new, that when we die, if, if we die before Jesus returns, we'll go on to heaven, and we have that head knowledge, but is it in our hearts What I mean is, is it affecting the way that you live your life? Is it affecting the way that I live my life? Are we really with Paul in saying to live is Christ and to die is gain? Or as he says in this passage, in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Are you longing for heaven? Are you longing for eternity? Or are you in the depths of your heart hoping that Jesus waits just a little bit longer before he comes back because you have grandkids on the way or, or you are waiting to get married or you want to just see this next stage of your life through? Are you like Paul or the nine-year-old girl, girl who once wrote to her pastor and said, Dear pastor, I hope to go to heaven someday, but later than sooner. Love, Ellen. If you're honest with yourself, where are you? How do you view heaven? Do you long for it? Or are you hoping just just a little bit longer till Jesus returns? 
for a lot of us, there are things in this world that we want to see through. And that's fine. When it, it becomes a problem, though, when we long for that more than we long for heaven. Are there things in this world that we want to see through even to the point where we're hoping that Jesus doesn't come as soon as he might so that we can go on that vacation that we've been planning or marry that girl or start the career that you studied so hard for or so that you can enjoy life without teenagers in the home? This kind of, <laughs> this kind of thinking, which, I mean, I can say that I've been guilty of comes from a lack of understanding what eternity will be like in the end, and quite frankly, it's unbiblical. Nowhere in Scripture do we see people talking about how excited they are for the next step. When we see people like Paul talking about going, being excited to go visit other cities and visit these churches, there's always a hint of, unless Jesus returns. He's m far more excited for that than he is to visit the Philippians or the Corinthians, Paul is addressing this issue by showing us that our focus should be on eternity in heaven rather than on the things of this earth so that we can live through the joyful and the sorrowful parts of this earth well. So we can follow in the footsteps of the people that have gone before us, the giants that have gone before us in courageous actions. And we'll see that through three points this morning. The certainty of heaven, our longing for heaven, and that we're prepared for heaven. So let's look back at 2 Corinthians 5.1 and talk about the certainty of heaven. Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul's confidence is found in his certainty of heaven, and it's not an arrogance. It's not an arrogant thing that he's saying, Oh, I'm going to heaven. Sometimes people accuse Christians of being arrogant in that way, but it's not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is, that we have this confidence. This first part of 2 Corinthians 5.1 is saying the same thing as the passages above. He's, he talks about the body in a temporary way. He says, we know, to, know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. He's saying this, he's comparing the sin-corrupted earthly body that we have that's deteriorating away to a tent. And it's a conditional statement. He says, that's what we can notice first, is that it's conditional. He says, if the tent that is our home is destroyed. And the condition is not that Paul has found a way to extend his present life. We know that he's been beaten, he's been, he's been stoned. It's not that he's found the fountain of youth or immortality for this present world. His condition is whether or not he will live to see Christ's return. It's not questioning whether or not we have a heavenly body or, or there will be a resurrection. What he's saying is, if our tent, if our bodies are destroyed, if we die before Jesus returns, we know that we have a building from God. And he talks about this earthly body as a tent. He shifts the imagery from earlier on when he compared it to pottery to a tent. And it's not this REI super tent that you can throw on top of your car. What he's referring to is the basic tent that he would make to, to fund his ministry. The one that won't last very long. It's sturdy and strong for what it is, and it, but it gets the job done, but it's temporary in nature. By no means should it be able to stand for a long time, and it won't last longer than a house. Destruction is certain 
for the tent eventually and for our earthly bodies. Our days are numbered, as Psalm 139, 16 says, your, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Our days are numbered. God, only God knows the exact number of days we have, and that might seem ominous. Often we talk about it in an ominous way, but that really should give us a boldness that God will keep us on this earth the perfect amount of time. We will not be taken sooner or be taken later, but God knows exactly how long we will live. There's no questioning on God's end what, it, what he has in store for us. He will not take us too soon or too late. God has given us an exact expiration date, and that should give us boldness. Not recklessness, not living as, as uh, pushing things to the limits, going far faster than we should, stepping out in front of traffic. Well, we'll know how long you're, how many days you have left. Um, but God's given us an exact expiration date that should give us boldness, knowing that God has every single day planned out for us. It's that kind of knowledge that the heroes of of church history, of our history, have had when facing opposition against them. It's that kind of boldness Martin Luther had that led to the Reformation, that sparked the Reformation. We can be bold knowing that our, our last days won't come too soon or too late. So Paul recognizes the temporary nature of our bodies. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He immediately builds this contrast that, that our earthly bodies are like a tent, but it, when we die, if we die, we will receive a heavenly resurrected body eternal. He calls it a building from God, a structure, a home. It is strong. It is from God. It's not made with human hands. It's the same description that Jesus gives our, his resurrected body in Mark 14. It's lasting. It's eternal in the heavens. Death no longer has the power over our eternal resurrected body like it, it does to some degree over our earthly bodies. Paul is basically saying we are bold because we know that if we die, God has a heavenly body ready for us. And that right there is the source of Paul's courage. That right there is the source of the heroes of, of Christian history. The certainty comes not from Paul, though, but from Christ. Paul's not saying my apostleship has led to this courage that I have. He's saying, no, Jesus my faith in Christ, the promises of God, is the source of this courage. And because of that, he can say things like he does in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when we move from this earthly tent to this heavenly dwelling, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul is taunting death because of who Jesus is. 
He is taunting death, saying, where is your victory? Where is the victory that you had? Where is your sting? And he continues and says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory, the victory, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is confident, so confident in the promises of God that he feels free to taunt death to the glory of God. He feels free to be on, almost on the verge of arrogance, but arrogance because he is boasting in God and not in himself. And that, that is the thing, this courage is one thing that we will get to experience, but only if we are in Christ. That confidence only comes to those who have put their faith in Jesus. We will only get to experience it through Christ that life after death is certain for everyone, but eternity in paradise only comes to those who put their faith in Jesus. That we will get to live in a world not stained by sin, and that is only promised to us. So are you certain that you will get a building from God? That's what you should be asking yourself. Have you put your faith in Jesus? We're all promised life after death, but what will that life be like? If you're outside of Christ, you are promised death and judgment. And the only way to escape that is by putting your faith in Jesus. Do you know where you stand? Do you have, have Paul's certainty? If not, put your faith in Christ. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one can come to the Father except through him. We can only depend on him for salvation. Paul is our example in that. It, it screams through the words that he has written in Scripture, that it is only Jesus that leads to his boldness. And it is only this same faith that leads to the boldness that Paul and other Christians throughout history have had, that they are certain of what comes next. But this, isn't, this certainty isn't all that Paul talks about with, in regards to heaven. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, I know where I'm going, but he talks about heaven as something that he longs for. That brings us to our second point, longing for heaven. Verse 2, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Paul continues on with this illustration of the body as a tent, if, and we know that if, if you're in a tent long enough, you will eventually long for your home. For some of you, it might take uh, multiple days or even weeks wandering through the Yosemite wilderness, and then eventually you get to the point where like, yeah, I could, I miss my home. Uh, for others, it takes 15 minutes before you've even set up your tent. But either way, the truth is the same. Our earthly tent is inadequate. The longer we look at it, the more years we, st we spend in our bodies, the longer or the, the quicker we long for eternity. Our bodies have ne been negatively affected by sin, and you feel this the longer you live. In first service, I kind of talked about it, um, experiencing it, and then I got reprimanded by an older elder in our church that I don't actually get it, so I won't spend much time talking about my own experience. But, but I know, from talk, especially from talking with others, that time and age causes our joints to become more painful, that we don't move as quickly as we used to, that it takes us to longer to recover from doing too much. 
And that's a sign that our bodies are deteriorating away. And I haven't even talked about sickness or the pain and sorrow that comes from sin and seeing the world suffer, seeing our relationships with other people suffer. To say the least, sin has done a number on this world. And that's why we long to put on our heavenly dwelling while we are still in this tent, while we are still in this body. And what Paul is talking about is the resurrection. He's talking about what will happen when Jesus returns and, and the, we get the new heavens and the new earth. And that's Paul's focus here when talking about the heavenly dwelling. It's the state of our resurrected bodies, equipped for eternity. He's not specifically talking about the location but just the fact that we will experience eternity. And there's a difference that, that's here. He's, he's not talking what theologians call the intermediate state, the, the time between our death, should we die before Jesus returns, and Jesus returning to earth. That there's this intermediate state, what, or what's called the present heaven, that while we wait for Jesus to return, we're in this in-between. And that will be glorious. It will be far more glorious than this world, that it will be sin-free, that it will be pain-free, but even more glorious will be the final consummation of this age, when we get the new heavens and the new earth. Randy Alcorn, in his, in his excellent book called Heaven, gives us, uh, I think, a helpful analogy to kind of see the difference here. So th there's two of them, actually, one that, the first one, and then there's a one that builds on the, on the first one, and so he, he says, imagine you live in a homeless shelter in Miami. And yet, and then one day you inherit a fully furnished, beautiful house that is exactly as you'd want it, that's overlooking Santa Barbara. Along with that, you get a job doing something you've always wanted to do, and you'll live near close family and friends that you love who moved there years ago. With the flight plans getting you from, from Miami in your homeless shelter to Santa Barbara, you have a stay in Dallas at probably Dallas-Fort Worth where, where, where you'll be for an afternoon. Other family members and friends will meet you there and board with you to Santa Barbara. You look forward to seeing them. But if you're, when you get to the airport, you're asked where are you headed, you wouldn't say Dallas, would you? You might mention it saying, yeah, I'm going to Santa Barbara, but I've changed planes in Dallas. Your real focus, though, is your final destination, being Santa Barbara. You might only mention Dallas. Your focus, though, would always be Santa Barbara. That kind of helps us to see the difference that, that Santa Barbara is the final destination. If, if you were to draw perfect symbolism, that it would be uh, the new heavens and new earth. But he gives them a more theologically precise one, a more theologically precise illustration. He says, imagine leaving the homeless shelter in Miami flying to the intermediate location, Dallas, and then turning around and going back home to your place of origin, which has been completely renovated. A new Miami. In this new Miami, you will no longer live in a homeless shelter, but in a beautiful house in a glorious, pollution-free, crime-free, sin-free city. So you would end up living not in a different home in a different city, but in a radically improved version of your old home. That analogy helps us even more, seeing that, that, yes, we will leave this home eventually, 
there may be an intermediate state, and heaven's going to be way better than Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, but, but it won't, heaven won't be as glorious as the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Paul is focused on here. Our problem, and the, the difference between us and Paul and his focus, is that we don't have the same desire for heaven, and we don't have that same desire because we don't have a right understanding of what heaven will be like. It would be, if we go back to the analogy, it would be like if we were not looking forward to the new Miami, but we were focused on Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And that's where we get stuck, and to be blunt, that's where we lose interest in heaven. We simply don't know enough or, or dwell on it enough to look forward to it. We might view heaven as an eternity-long church service. That first up will come Chris Tomlin, and then the next Caleb person, and then the next Caleb person, and then after that we have Charles Spurgeon, and then Paul Washer, and then John MacArthur, and we're sitting in pews made of clouds. And to be honest, that's not what Scripture talks about. So no wonder we lose interest in heaven. We don't realize that eternity will be spent in a new heavens and new earth, a sinless world that we're already familiar with. That it's God dwelling amongst his people without the barrier of sin. That we are given a resurrection body, unstained, unaffected by sin, that we're living, working, and worshiping in this remade world for eternity. That we're not just sitting in pews forever, but we are dwelling with God in a new world. When we look at eternity this way, when we dwell on it and, and view it this way, no wonder Paul can long for it. No wonder he says he groans for it. So we groan, we long for eternity with God, with resurrection bodies unstained, unaffected by death and sin. In a world that is unaffected by death and sin. And we can groan for that because we know how much better it will be than this life. Paul continues on in verse 3. He says, If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul goes on to make it clear what he is groaning for what he is longing for, and it's not death. He's not looking forward to death in an unhealthy way. He's looking to forward to what comes after death, what comes when Jesus returns. He's not groaning for the nakedness of death, as he calls it. He's not longing or groaning to escape the troubles of this world, he says in Philippians, to live as Christ and to die as gain. But he's longing for resurrection life. He's longing for eternity with his Savior. He wants the life that comes with the return of Jesus Christ. And that's what we should be hoping for. We're not hoping for death. We're not hoping to escape this world. But we're hoping that Jesus, retu that Jesus returns quickly and that we can enjoy life, eternal life with him. A life without burdens, without sin, and with a resurrected body in a remade world. So that begs the question, what do you long for? 
Are you like Paul? Are you groaning that, that the burdens of this life while we're in this tent, in this body, a tent that like all tents can't bear burdens for much, for very long, that will crumble under the weight, but are we longing for the heavenly dwelling that God has prepared, prepared us for and has prepared for us? We know that this, that this sinful world is coming to an end. The sin-stained world is coming to the end. And yet that doesn't cause us to fear. That doesn't lead us to crying out, but it should lead us to long for eternity. Scripture is clear that our focus must be on the things of God the things of heaven, the things that are eternal. I mean, Jesus specifically says in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 to lay up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth because the things of this world are temporary. Thieves break in and steal. Moths and rust destroy. When we have our minds focused on heaven, the burdens of this world become lighter. The things that we love in this world begin to grow dim. The things that are truly valuable, though, the things of God become brighter, become more desirable to us. So what are you focused on? What do you long for? Are the burdens of this world too much? Turn your eyes to Jesus. Do you know that you love the things of this world a little bit too much? Turn your eyes to heaven. Those things don't last. Seek the things above. Long for the place where we will be further clothed when the burdens of this life are swallowed up when Jesus comes. But this type of focus can only come when we have been prepared for it. Verse 5, prepared for eternity. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Paul doesn't say that he's prepared himself. He doesn't recount all the things that he's done to prepare for focusing on heaven. He says that God is the one who's prepared him. This is all possible only because of God. That yes, we obviously know his role in our salvation. That's pretty well established. But he doesn't just stop there by giving us a new heart and by giving us faith. He continues on in sanctifying us through his spirit. We're prepared for the next life because of the work of God. There was nothing done on our end, but it's God who through Christ blotted out our sin. It's God who through Christ justified us. He gave us faith. He gave us a new heart. And he is preparing us for the next life. And him simply saying that should be enough. When we read in scripture, God telling us that he is going to make us new, that should be enough but God's gone even beyond that. Verse 5 continues, it says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He's given us the Spirit as a deposit for the things to come, a guarantee of the things to come. And when we put a deposit down, like when we put, put a down payment on a house, there's a, a waiting period there that we get it more excited. You drive past the house a bunch, even if you don't live there. You look around the neighborhood. You get excited for it, but you don't really have it just yet. There are tastes of it. There's, there's things you look forward to as you buy furniture or whatever, prepare to move, but you don't get the fulfillment of it until later. And that's, 
what Paul is equating it to here. That we're given the spirit, we're given tastes of, of the full righteousness that we'll have. In our church communities, we get tastes of what heaven will be like, but we still sin against one another. We still are fighting against our own sin. And victories over sin are tastes of heaven, but we don't have the full thing just yet. But the Spirit is that down payment, that further um, cementing of the promises that God has given to us. That's what that's a role of the Spirit today. That's something that He does for us today. So in light of that, we don't just sit around and show up at church on Sundays and then live our lives as normal. No, we work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. We work alongside God. We work alongside the Spirit to conquer our sin, to follow His guidance on on what he is calling us to do, who he's calling us to evangelize for, who he's calling us to disciple, or who we're to be discipled under. This isn't some spiritual, find yourself in the, in the mountains experience that you need. No, this is something for every single Christian. It's not something that you gain after so many church services attended. No, it's given to us when we believe. It's given to us as soon as we put our faith in Christ. And after that comes obedience. Because as James says, faith without works is dead. Our obedience is the sign of the indwelling of the Spirit. The sign of the faith that we have put in Christ. Are you doing what God has called you to do? When we have our eyes locked on eternity, we will by nature obey. Are you living a godly life? Are you in his word? Do you spend time in prayer? Or is the Christian life just showing up to church on Sundays, maybe going to a small group, and then living your life as you did before? Maybe with a little bit less obvious sin. Is the Christian life just hanging out with like-minded people, and is that the most Christian thing you do? Or is the Christian life full submission to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you expect to become more like Christ without following his example of, of being saturated in the word of God or depending on prayer and the other disciplines, depending ultimately on God, then you're following a fruitless path, a path that will not lead to boldness, will not lead to certainty of where you are going after death. I think one of, the, one of the issues that we see with this, why people aren't fully living out their faith is because we may not have spiritual examples for us. One of the most troubling things I see as I work with students in this church and in this community is the lack of spiritual example they have in their lives. And it's not just kids that are in, in single-parent homes or, or even non-Christian homes, but it's kids who, whose parents profess Christ who are maybe even involved in the church. I talk to plenty of kids whose parents may not be leading them spiritually, and it's not a complaint that they have. They just don't know. I read a book when I first started student ministries that, that said, I think it was like upwards of 90% of kids will follow the spirituality they see in the home. And I think that probably extends beyond that, 
that most church members will follow the spirituality that they see around them. And to some degree, that's on us. That's on the individual. Who do you, who do you surround yourself with? But it's also on us to be an example as well. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. It's not an arrogant thing. That's not coming from, oh, look how righteous I am, like the Pharisees might have. But it's saying, come alongside me. I'm following Jesus, and here's how you can do it too. Are you asking the people around you what they're reading in Scripture? Are you praying for them? Are you guys discussing Scripture together, discussing your sin and and overcoming your sin? Is your focus as a group of, of friends or as a community on heaven and the things of God? When we have a child dedication at the end of, end of uh, Celebration Sundays or in the middle of Celebration Sundays, we all stand as a community. We did it a couple of weeks ago. We stand as a community and say, we will help you parents raise up your kids in the things of the Lord. Are you doing that? If the kids in our church looked at you, are you an example of what it means to follow Christ? And they won't all look the same. We all have different personalities but are you seeking after Jesus? If you're a mature Christian, it is your call to lead by example. And if you are just starting out in the faith, if you are at the beginning of the pilgrim's progress, as John Bunyan calls it, if you're at the beginning, is there someone that you are following? Have you opened yourself up to to discipleship? I mean, that goes for everyone, but especially younger believers. Is there someone that is raising you up that you want to follow after as they follow Christ? Are you someone's spiritual younger sibling or, or even son or daughter, or are, you, or, or are you on the side that you could be someone else's spiritual older sibling or father like Paul is to Timothy? When our eyes are fixed on Christ, we can't help but bring others alongside us. We can't help to look ahead of us and say, I want to be like that person. I want to be like them as they follow Jesus. These verses show us the reason Christians throughout history have had such great courage is because their eyes are locked on Jesus. Their eyes are fixed on heaven. They knew where they were going and they knew what it would be like. They studied it. They saw what God was preparing beforehand, what he's told us about in his word. Are our eyes fixed on heaven and fixed on the, on the things of God? Do we have the same courage and confidence? Are you prepared for heaven? Are you able to look at the reality of death through the lens of scripture, not as, not as some thing to be feared, but as something that just stands between us and God? Not that we seek it out, but it's not something we're afraid of. Are we able to see our lives against the backdrop of eternity? That's how we should be viewing life. That sure, the things, there are things in this world that we enjoy, but given the opportunity to be with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, we say, Jesus, come quickly. Jesus, come as soon as you can. As believers, we look at death with great courage because we know that Jesus has already won. We taunt death with Paul. We look at death with great courage because it has lost its sting 
and it has no victory. So that's Paul's focus as he has been courageous in proclaiming the gospel. That's why, because he is locked on heaven. And next week, as we finish out 1 through 10, we'll talk about how we get that same courage, how we long for heaven. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and, and how it guides us and reminds us of what we ought to be looking forward to. I pray that we would look forward to heaven, that we would, we would look forward and see what you are preparing for us. How you have dis- described it, I pray that you'd give us a desire that goes beyond the things of this world, that the things of this world that we like, that we love, pale in comparison to what you are preparing. Thank you for who you are and, and the confidence that we have because of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.